Okay, so last week we left off with, we finished, I think it was Birchat Torah. So that was the conclusion of the Birchat Shachar according to the Svaradim. However, we have to pay tribute to our holy brethren, <laughs> the Ashkenazim. And we're going to look through the popular additions to the morning Seder, to the, to the Birchat Shachar that Ashkenazim, Ashkenazim put in. Um... Namely, Matovu, Halach Yaakov, Adon Olam, and Yigdal. Before we... So yeah, they do it. Many of them do these um, tefillot either on their way to shul or... Some people don't do it at all because they're optional. But um, they they are quite common and popular. So in the, here, in the beginning of the Sidur, there's, there's something that we have to get out of the way. Um, the beginning of the Arts Girl Sidur, which is very famous, there's... A set of psukim, Reishit Chochmairat Hashem, Seichal Tov Lechol Hashem, Tilatom Adet Laad. Right after Moda'ani, there's a bunch of psukim which they say. A, they say, Baruch Shem, Kevod Machut Olamed, Torah Tzivalanu Moshe, Shema Bini Musar Avicha, Torah Tehe Amonati, and Lishuat Chakiviti Hashem. A set of psukim from Tehilim, Dvarim, Mishlei, Dvarim, Reishit, a bunch of different psukim. Now, when I first started researching Tefillah, I really wanted to know where these were from. And much to my surprise, they're from nowhere, um, which is why I was very disturbed that Art Scroll had, was putting Pesukim in before you say Birkata Torah. Now the Ramah, according to Ashkenazim we saw last week, the, the Ramah himself holds that if you're saying Pesukim B'derech Tefillah, meaning in a manner of praying, then it doesn't count as learning Torah, so you don't necessarily have to say Birkata Torah first. Therefore the Ashkenazim are not as cautious with this as we are. However, where in the world did they get these psukim from was, was boggling my mind. And I researched and researched. I tried finding all the Ashkenaz Sidurim I could from Germany and Poland. The best thing I found was that in the beginning of the Sidurim of many of the, of a couple of recent Sidurim, like from the early 20th century, were these sections for very little kids, like four-year-olds. And they would put something like Rishis Chachma or Torah Tziva Lanu Moshe Marsha Kielos Yaakov, like a song for, for little kids who really did not know how to pray. It was kind of like a practice thing. They still have it today in the Siddur of the Lubavitch. Um, you'll find it in the beginning of a bunch of, like the singer Siddur had it for a while, the, the, the British Siddur. Other than that, I could not find a source for saying these psukim. It was very surprising to me that Arts Girl put them in, so I sent them an email twice. <laughs> they never replied. <laughs> um, however, I did notice recently that their Wasserman Siddur, which is the new addition to the Arts Girl set, omits it. The Arts Girl, the Wasserman, I think, I, if I remember correctly, only puts Rishis Chachmayras Hashem. They, and they don't put the rest of the Pesukim. They totally left them out. I think they reneged on their original decision to put in those Pesukim. Um, and in my view, for, for good reason, I, I still have no idea what, what led to bringing these psukim. It's, it was obviously a very early decision in the Siddur that they made, and it must have been a very deliberate one, so I'm not sure why or how they came to be. Maybe somebody will hear this year and let me know. So the next um, thing that the Ashkenazim say is, So this is a collection of here of five psukim, um, at the beginning of Tefillah. Now, yeah, it's, different. it's a different order. <laughs> they put the Tefillin before Birkata Um The way Arts Girl sets this up is simply for convenience. Oh, um, like they, they, they don't follow the order. Everyone does what they do. Unfortunately, not everybody has, like, it, it would be best to put on your Tefillin after Birkata Torah because you're saying those two parashiyot. Um, you're going to say the two parashas of Tefillin. Our school structured their Birchot HaShachar in the early editions that we have in front of us, the Ashkenaz-inspired basic books. They structured it most more according to convenience than, unfortunately, halacha. In, in my view, I, I, it, the point can be argued, but I think it was more a practical decision than it was a halachic decision. Um, so Matovu has five sukim. So Matovu Alech Yaakov, Va'ani Berov Chastecha, um, basically, let me just translate that. This is the pasuk that Bilam said um, when uh, he tried to curse. He tried to curse uh, Am Yisrael, and Hashem forced him to to uh, to say the opposite. So he said, "How great are your tents, uh, O Jacob? Your dwellings, Israel. This is a pasuk of Tehillim that I, in your great kindness, will come to your house, and I will bow to your 
um, to your holy dwelling, biratecha, in, in awe of you, Hashem, ahavti melon beitecha, Hashem, I loved your abode, um, umakom vishkan kvodecha, in the place uh, where your presence rests, va'ani This pa- over here, this is not actually a pasuk. This this is a paraphrasing of pasuk in Tehilim, which says, bo'u let us come and and prostrate ourselves, nivrecha, let us bless, lefnei Hashem osenu, in front of Hashem, our, our, um, Creator. However, it was paraphrased to be in the singular form because this is a private tefillah. Uh, another pasuk from Tehillim, and 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 I may my tefillah be to you, Tashem, at a at a gracious time. Elokim um, Hashem, in your great kindness, answer me um, with the truth of your salvation. Now, no one knows for sure um, who began the minhag to say these pesukim. However. The minhag became to say these pesukim on your way to shul. Now the gemara, in uh, I believe it's, do I have it here? It's in Sanhedrin, daf, I believe kufhe amaralaf or amarbet. The gemara over there says that Bilam, when he said matavu alechi Yaakov mishkunatech Yisrael, he was referring to the bate midrashot and bate knisiot. He wanted a curse bnei Yisrael never to have them. And we forced him to do the opposite. Hashem forced him to do the opposite. Therefore, on our way to shul, this is the thing that we say. We say we, we say a pasuk which um, uh, speaks of the glory of a Beit Knesset. This is actually quite early. It's, no one knows really why or how it started, but there, this does exist in the Machsor Vitri, which is the Talmidim of Rashi. Some editions of the Siddur of Amram have it. So we're talking already in the 11th century, in the in the... Yeah, about the 11th century, the 10th century, even if the Siddur of Amram is correct. So it would be a very old minhag to say this on your way to shul. Um, I believe the Abu Durham, yeah, the Abu Durham says it in in Sharchet. He has the sec, he doesn't mention Matovu, but he mentions Va'anibarov Hastecha, and I and your kindness shall come to your house. He says you should say that when, you, when you're on your way to the shul. The Kolbo also brings this Pesukim, Va'anibarov Hastecha. They should say that when you come in, and he has the next Pasuk Necheni Betzitkatecha. He says you should say that when you're leaving. Now, the Maharshal, we said last week, the Maharshal was an, an innovator, and he lived in the time of like the Ramah and the, and the Beit Yosef. Uh, maybe the time of the Ramah, I believe. So he. He was innovative. He said he didn't. He personally didn't like ma- saying "Matovo Yaakov in the morning because Bilam said it, and it's and it's it was intended for a curse. Other people, you know, other achronim are like, what, "Who cares if Bilam said it? It's a bracha." But he personally didn't feel comfortable saying "Matovu," so he simply said "Vani Berov Chastecha." Um, he did not say "Vani Tefilati." The last pasuk here, because this pas- the the Gemara, I think it's in Shabbat learns it out to say it only for Shabbat Mincha. You're supposed to say this before. Right, right? right? so we, we, um, we, we say this pasuk um, by Shabbat Mincha, and therefore he thought it was exclusive for Shabbat Mincha, so we shouldn't say it every day. Um, interestingly, the, the Malbim on, on this pasuk, Vani Berov Hastachan, I in your great kindness shall come to your house. He says something intellectually interesting. He says that if you compare Judaism with other religions, um, in other religions, they, they build their faith more on fear than they do on on, 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 on love or on awe. And for especially idolatry, um, you have to rush to, um, you have to rush to temple because if not, you're your rain god is going to strike you down, or if you don't give human sacrifices or any of these things, people came to the to their places of worship more out of fear that the rain god won't give them rain than they did out of awe or out of love. And in contrast to Judaism, the Malbim says, um, when people rush to a shul, they don't come to shul because they're afraid that if they don't, uh, <laughs> that we're afraid that if we don't do that, God is going to strike us down. We come because it's we're devoted because we come because we're orthodox because we want to actually uh, serve Hashem. It's a different attitude towards coming to worship, towards coming to, to serve Hashem. Now, the first of after Matovu, and meant most of this of the Ashkenaz um, uh, Sidurim has Adon Olam. Some Svaradim have Adon Olam as well in the Sidurim. Um, I think on. I would say a majority do not have it in that location. Many of them have it like after Musaf on Shabbat. They'll have Adon Olam. 
Yeah, okay. So I saw in, in the in the Yehavadat they put it earlier in the Siddur as well. So Adon Olam is a very early um, piyut, a very early poem. And in order to understand that, we have to go back a little in history, the way we, in the second year we spoke about the history, but just to refresh, um, poetry in in Judaism is something which has a very, very long history because if you could call it poetry, there are times in the Torah, in Tanakh, where we have poems. For example, Az Yashir Moshe, Hazinu, we have Eshet Chayel Miyimsa, plenty of poems throughout um, throughout the Torah. Now, what what's particular about biblical poetry is that it's very, very early. It's three, four thousand years old. And styles of poetry at the time were not developed and as common as they were even a thousand years later. Therefore, the elements of biblical poetry are going to be very different than elements of poetry that you'll see a thousand, two thousand years later. Um, not because now the Torah doesn't write poetry without poetry the way it does simply because it wants simply because it didn't know of techniques that came later the Torah writes poetry the way it does because it has very specific things that it means when it says every word um, however the styles are notably different so in biblical poetry you'll have the most the most common technique used in biblical poetry is a technique called parallelism, which means that you almost compare one thing to the other or one foot of a stanza will parallel the foot of the other stanza, right? You'll have Eshet Chayil Miyimsa, a woman of valor who can find her, meaning where can, where can you find her? She is uh, more valuable than pearls. It parallels the first part in meaning, right? So the first and second part will generally parallel themselves in meaning. You'll have heart, artistic form. You'll have harmony. You'll have melody. Different um, flows to the poems in Tanakh, but there's no quantitative measurements or structure. You won't find things that you will find in contrast to post-biblical poetry, which have things such as rhyme. They'll have meter. They'll have form. They'll have they'll have um, feet and 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 distiques and couplets and a, a, a distich is, a, is basically a couplet. They'll have all sorts of techniques that were developed much later because obviously the first poetry, the first uh, Jewish poetry, which was written after the time of the Tanakh, was much 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 later. Um, the, we find some poems in in the Gemara. It's arguable. Um, there are poems which were done in the time of the Savoraim. And there were poems done in early poetry is really at the time of the Geonim. So if we leave the poetic structure of the Tanaim and Amaraim away from this discussion, the earliest Paitanim were uh, Yanai, Yossi Berabiosi, and Rabbi Lazar Kalir. They lived at the, during the early time of the Geonic era and the Geonim, which is between like the year... Scholars dispute this, but between like the year 400 and 800, basically, those were those were their lifetimes. Somewhere in that area is where they lived. Now, those poets definitely employed rhyme. They definitely employed uh, form. You'll you'll have, for example, we say slichot. Um, there's plenty of very early poetry in slichot, like macheu mase memitu mache. Right? You'll find rhyme over there. And Ashkenazim are say a lot more Kalirian poetry than we do, so they're more familiar with it. But that's the um, that's the general progression of how poetry came to its modern form. Now, later, after that era of the early poets, a new thing, a new style came to Jewish poetry, and that was adapted from Arabic poetry. Now, the Arabs developed their poetry very, very well. Arabic is a it was and still is a very sophisticated language. So, in the year in the tenth century the year between the year 900 and, and 1000, um, there was a Jewish um, foreign minister who worked for the Amayyad, uh, Amayyad? Yeah, di- dynasty. His name was Chistai Ibn Shaprut. He was a genius of a diplomat, and he worked for the caliph of uh, Cordoba, which was a province of Spain at the time when Spain was still ruled by the, by the Muslims. 
and he was very wealthy, very influential, and he used his money not just to um, not just to support Jewish uh, Jewish people and to help. He used his connections to protect Jewish communities all over the world, but he also used his money to finance certain scholars. And two scholars that he financed were uh, Dunash uh, ben Labrat and Menachem ben Saruk. These are two very famous uh, scholars that he sponsored. Um, they were most famous for being grammarians. They studied Hebrew grammar. At the time, Hebrew, or Lashon HaKodesh as a language, was about, I would say, Lashon HaKodesh to them must have been 2,000 years old. It was a very difficult thing. It's a very difficult thing even today for us to know exactly the rules of the Hebrew language because it's, it's just so old. It's very hard to track down the exact uh, little details of the of the grammar and f- and furthermore the exact details of the nikudim of the vow of the vowels, even today it's difficult for us to, under- to know exactly how they pronounced Hebrew a thousand years ago. Let alone for them back then to know how they pronounced Hebrew two thousand years prior. So they were the first grammarians, the not the first, but some of the first grammarians to really do some of the best work. Um, Rashi quotes them all the time in Chumash. You'll see Rashi quote Dunash, and Rashi will quote the Machberet of Menachem. Rashi will just say simply Menachem, because they used their di- Menachem made a dictionary, and Dunash bin Labrat um, wrote a book of grammar and, 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 and other things. Now, why I bring this? Why do I bring this up? Because Dunash um, began an innovation, which was to borrow the techniques of Arabic poetry and transport it to Jewish poetry. Um, this was something that Menachem disagreed with effusively. He was not happy that this was done because, he, for, for many reasons. First of all, hey, it's Arabic. It's a different. La- uh, second of all, because it's a different language, it has different rules. For example, in in Arabic, you can say many more consonants in a row. Uh, you can do, for example, in English, you have consonant vowel, consonant vowel. In in Arabic, you could do like um, like a or I, I can't do it with my throat, but Arabs can like a ta 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 or an eh, eh, eh in a in a row um, for many more iterations than you can in Hebrew. For example, in Hebrew, you can't have two shivas which make the i sound in a row. That's not possible in Arabic. You can. Therefore, the meters were simply going to be different. Um, also, the vowel sounds were different. The broken sounds were different. In, in, in the Arabic meters, they had what was called a watid and a sabab, right? Two of the elements. A watid is, in Hebrew, a yated, a peg. And a sabab in Hebrew is a tinua, which is a movement. So sometimes the sound of the... Let's say you're going through a stanza in poetry, in, in a poem. Sometimes you'd come to a broken sound, which is where you ste- where you peg. And sometimes you would move, which is a tinua. So a yated and a, and a tinua. So the most famous of the... Dunash himself wrote a poem. He was, he was a paitan himself. And the most famous of his poems is Dirori Ikra which many people say on Shabbat, a very beautiful poem. And it spells out the name Donash. Trorikra has the Dalit, the Vav, uh, the Nun. Um, if you'll notice, the Trorikra is a... So Trorikra and Adon Olam are both in a, in a type of Arabic meter called Hazaj. Hazaj is a meter where you have first a broken, a broken sound, and then you have two or, th- or three mo- movements. Some, some think it's two, some think it's three. Um, but in Hazaj, you'll almost always use a shiva for the broken, for the broken sound because the shiva is the most, is the most uh, similar to the Arabic broken sound which was used for the watid, for the, for the peg. Therefore, in Dororika, you'll have, it says ni'im instead of na'im. So Ni'im Shimchem instead of Na'im because he wanted to use a Shiva. And you'll either have a, in, in Adon Olam, if you look in front of you, you'll see Biterem Kol, Livado. And even when it's a Patach, it's a Chataf Patach. Adon Olam is, a, is, a, is not a full Patach. It's like a, a Patach with a, with a Shiva in it. It's, a, it's called a composite Shiva. And, but most of Adon Olam has Vihuyiya, Leham Shilo, right? It always uses the Shiva for that reason because it was written in Chazaj. Um, there's a, there's a there's quite a few poems written in the, in, in in Hazaj. It's it's really a Hazaj itself is what's called a modified wafir. A wafir is 
is, is a longer form of, of the Chazaz. And, and once, you, once you transfer it to Hebrew, it's basically not recognizable. This is one of the ways you can tell if a, a part of the poem was written by somebody who knew what he was doing or if it was written by just some other dude who decided to do something random and stick in, um, stick in his, own, um, his own stanza. So in Hebrew, they actually call Hazaj the Mishkal Hamarnin, which means the, 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 the scale. Yeah, the, but like the joyful scale. That's what they call Hazaj in Hebrew. Um, so now what's fascinating about, about Adon Olam is that it is one of the most beautiful piyutim that we have in Tefillah, and yet we have no idea who wrote it. It is almost completely anonymous. Decades of research, maybe more than decades, almost 100 to 150 years of research has yielded no results. Nobody knows who wrote it at all. Um, people have made various claims. Uh, people say it's Gabi Roll, but we have no evidence to that. Some people want to say it's Yubi Huda Halevi. Again, there's no hard evidence to tell us who exactly wrote it. The, it, it started to appear in manuscript in the 15th century, like the, the, the handwritten Sidurim. And then it was first it first appeared in a printed Sidur in Krakow in 1578. There was a Sidur there. Um, the, it's findable. Uh, it, it's, co- it's quoted by a bunch of scholars. Um, the But from the language of it, from the meter, from the lexicon, it's very clear that it's a very early piyut. So many people suspect that it's probably Gaonic. It's may, maybe you know it's it's definitely medieval. It's anywhere in it was composed anywhere between like the year 950 and 1400. We we really don't know. It's just going to remain that way because we're not going to uh, we're not going to find out now. Um, so now, the, as you can see in front of us, there's between. 10 to 16 lines in Adon Olam. The Ashkenazim have 10, and some Sfaradi versions have as many as 16. So every line... Ours is longer than this. Huh? Ours is longer than Yeah, ours is 16. You'll have it in front of you. Uh, did I steal yours? I think I stole yours. Um, okay, so where's mine? Oh, here it is. I have mine. So, okay. Every line you'll notice has eight syllables. Adon Olam, Asher Malach, Biterem Kol, Yesir Nivra. So it's in total eight syllables. Um, there's eight distichs, meaning eight couplets, if, or technically five if you're if you're Ashkenaz. Some are called open uh, distichs, some are, are run-on. However, only ten of these lines, if, you, if when we study them, we're going to see that only about ten of these lines actually seem authentic. The other six were probably additions that were added later. So now, why do we start to feel? Why do the Ashkenazim start to feel out with Adon Olam? So some of the one of the the way I heard this was that one of the Tamidim the Gra suggested to him that we know that Avraham Avinu was the first person to call Hashem Adon. It says it's Gemara and Brachot that that Avraham Avinu was the first person to, to call Hashem Adon, and therefore because Shachrit was. Uh, instituted for or by Avram Avinu, therefore we begin it with the word Adon. And apparently the Grah really appreciated this part, he really liked it. And that's, people still say it over B'Shem the Grah, but the way I heard it was that it was from the Tamidim. One of the, one of the Tamidim of the Grah said this, this Pshat. Um, so there's a, the early, one of the earliest uh, references we have to Adon Olam is in the Sefer Mate Moshe, which is in the 16th century about. And he says in there that he saw written um, and of and of that if you say Adon Olam, it's going to it's a segula that your tefillah will be accepted, and not only that, but it'll protect you from Yitzhar uh, Hara uh, and the Satan on Yom Kippur and on Rosh Hashanah. It's going to protect you on those days. It's a fascinating thing, however. It would be very interesting if Rav Shriya Gaon and Rav Hai Gaon were familiar with Adon Olam, because if it really was, if it really did exist for that long, first of all, we would see it in Sidurim all the way back to the 10th century, and we don't. And furthermore, to say that the Hazaj meter was seen by Rav Shriya Gaon is just chronologically troubling, because Rav Shriya Gaon lived in the 900s, and that was really the the century, sorry, in the yeah, in the tenth century, the nine hundreds, which would was the century where this actually um, happened, where this was innovated, where where the first time Hazaj ever was used. So it would be very interesting if if, if, if Shuragon and Haigaon 
ever saw um, a, a Hazaj Piyut and had anything to say about it themselves. Some people, like the Sidur, actually uh, th- uh, misread the Matimosha and they think that uh, that he says there of Haigaon and Ashiragaon wrote it, which makes no sense. Um, but that's what he says. <laughs> okay. So let's go through the Piyut. I guess we can. Um, I guess we can go through it basically. I don't know if we should go through the whole thing quickly. Let's do the Ashkenaz one quickly with the translation, and then we'll and then we'll recap. So Adon Olam Hashem Alach, the master of the, uni- uh, the master of the universe who reigned as king, Betedem Kol Yitzir Nevrab before anything any creation was created. Leit Nasa Kol. However, at a chosen moment, everything was created. At that moment, Azay Melech Shemonakra, and then his name was proclaimed king. And after all is said and done, after everything is go- everything is going to be to be destroyed, he himself will reign forever. And he was and he is. And he will remain forever with glory. And he is um, one and not two. To compare him or to... Um, to bind him with, this is the this is one which is probably not authentic. He is first and he is last. To all form and to to all matter and to all form. Without a start, without a finish, without any beginning or end. And to him is the is the strength and the um, and the sovereignty. This is a two, just following our two. Uh, Sephardi editions, which are probably not authentic. Without any measurement, without any comparison. Without any um, swap or change. Without any um, binding attribute, without any separating attribute. Great in strength and, and, in, and, in, and in might. And he is my God and my merciful God and my life of my, my living Redeemer. And he is the rock of my oppression, and he's the rock of my salvation, really, in a day of, of, of my distress. Vuhunisi umanusi, he is both my flag and my refuge. Minat kosi, the biomekra, he fills my cup on the day I call. Here's another line which is probably not authentic. and he is my healer, and he does the healing. and he's the one we hope to. Biadov kiduchi, in his hands I will. And trust my spirit. When I when I sleep and when I wake up, and as long as my soul is connected to my body, Hashem Hashem is mine. Hashem is to me, and I shall not fear. The Sfaradim add another two, which are from the meter. You can simply tell that they're probably not uh, legitimate. In in his Beta Mikdash, my my soul will rejoice. Should he send our Mashiach, our Mashiach quickly? And then I will sing in his holy temple. Amen, amen, Shem Hanora. Amen in the name of the awesome one. So now, some of these additions were most likely because you can tell that they don't conform to the syllable structure, they don't conform to the metrical structure, they were almost definitely added by people who are more familiar with the song than they were familiar with the meter because it fits it could these these things can these lines can fit with a song, but they won't necessarily fit with the, the original meter. Um, so let's look at it. Um, one uh, we'll do everything that uh, we'll we'll highlight everything here which is important. So firstly, Adonolam. Um, the meaning of Adonolam, most people know, uh, and most people who speak Hebrew would understand as the master of the universe. Secular scholars look at the word Olam and they never really know what to think because sometimes it means eternal, forever, and sometimes it means universe. So they always interpret it in context. They're like, okay, what are we talking about? Are we talking about time? Okay, so it means eternal. Are we talking about place? Then it means universe. However, Hebrew speakers know there's there's linguistic comfortability that we have, which will let us know sometimes that Adon Olam means master of the universe. All the secular scholars translate Adon Olam as eternal Lord because they believe it means eternal because we're talking about time in the beginning. However, Jewish sources almost always interpret it as master of the universe because we know that Adon Olam means ribon olamim. It means it's the Hebrew translation of the Aramaic, which is Ribbon Alamin, which is the master of the world. So 
You'll find the Jewish sources translated as that. Now, Adon Olam, just the two words, are a signal to anybody who's, who, who is familiar with the Kabbalah that the person who's writing this piyut knows his stuff and he's about to write something which is going to allude to the Kabbalah because Adon Olam has the same exact kamachi as Ein Sof, which means the infinite one. It's a, it's a word that the Mekubalim use to describe Hashem. And so just starting with the two words, Adon Olam, is like already a signal that, that this is going to be a piyut of profound um, depth. Um, okay. The the word Yitzir, Betedem Kol Yitzir Nevra, before anything, any created thing was, was any formed thing was created. Yitzir is not a Hebrew word. If you, if, if you um, it's not a real Hebrew word. If you remember from the, the Rosh Hashanah davening, we have Viavin Kol Yitzir, uh, and all Yitzur and all formed objects will know formed things will know that you are its former so simply put in Hebrew it would be Yitzur Yitzir is a poetic innovation we find that Rabbi Yehuda Halevi also uses this this language of Yitzir he's one of the, the Paitanim who do, do use this language which is, could fuel speculation that it's him but we don't know that for sure uh, but again it's a poetic innovation um now here comes the the uh, the famous problem with Adon Olam is the at his appointed chosen time everything was created right eight doesn't mean what zman means zman means like a time an hour a day but eight means an, a chosen moment like a precipitous moment um, then his name was reigned king so the very simple question is when was he king. Was he king before uh, before creation, or was he king after creation? So the simple answer is that, well, before he was creation, he was king, but after creation, he was called king by his subjects who he had then created. But the uh, sixth Lubavitcher Rebbe, he has a, um, a mamar, what is it called? Mamar HaChodesh HaZelachem. And in it, he's speaking about the the difference between the Rosh Hashanah of Pesach and the Rosh Hashanah of of uh, Tishrei of Nisan and Tishrei. Hashem created the world either in Nisan or in Tishrei. And he speaks about the difference between the the Kabbalistic uh, underpinnings of of underworkings of how those things are different. What happened in the Rosh Hashanah of Tishrei? What happened in the Rosh Hashanah of Nisan? And to put it simply. He differentiates between two forms of malchut. Now, in Kabbalah, malchut does not mean what it means in our world. In our world, malchut, or sovereignty, or kingship, means uh, exactly as it sounds well, when you have a king who, who has sovereignty over his subjects. But the way the sefirot, these celestial uh, mechanics, these tools that Hashem uses to create our world, or to run our world, the way they work parallel and, and, and they empower the way our emotions and our world works. So, for example, if you have a sefirah called chesed, that would parallel the way our chesed works in us. If you have, we have, for example, a structure of chokhmah, bina, and dat, so, or let's say keter, chokhmah, bina, so first we have our will, then comes our, our flash of intelligence to, to, how to how to do something, and then comes the bina, our structure of how our brain develops that thought and then we have the seven midot or sefirot or the seven emotions underneath that which then form it. So the way the mechanical structures are in the world above us are uh, what's the word? Are um, replicated in the worlds uh, beneath them. Now malchut in our world, right? is very interesting because it's completely dependent on other people of the same class. Meaning that if you want to be a ruler, you want to, you want to be a king, you have to have other human beings who build a system of loyalty and of trust. And when you build that system or that hierarchy, you then obtain power. And that power is the ability to make change, to move, to give orders, and everyone moves as one unit. That's the power of a king. His power comes from the subjects, the people who subject themselves to him, who give loyalty to him, who give trust to him, and obey his command. Now, it's only possible... So, the 
the way to, anal to analogize this is that in the high, in the lower worlds, that's only possible when you have other humans. Because if you're on a desert island and you have other monkeys, the monkeys don't care if you pronounce yourself king of the island because you're king over nobody. They, <laughs> You're not going to feel like a king. They're not going to consider you the king because they're monkeys. Only other humans can relate to a king and therefore make him empowered and make him a king. In the higher worlds, the Sefira of Malchut works similarly. Malchut on its own does not have any intrinsic uh, outer outgoing power. Let's call it to oversimplify. It doesn't have any outgoing power. The only radiative power it has, the only giving power that it that it has is by receiving from the other Sefirot. The other Sefirot uh, give into Malchut and then Malchut can give out. Malchut gets its power through the, the Shefa of the other Sefirot. So that's only true, says the Rebbe, that is only true in the lower um, in the the lower worlds, in the world of Asiya, Yitzira, and, As and Yitzira and Bria. However, in the Olam HaTzilut, in the highest world, or in the world before Hashem created the world, which is called Malchut whatever the Malchut HaTzilut, I won't go into depth, but in that world, it is possible for there, there is a Malchut which exists and has power without, independent of any subjects, and independent of other spheres of its same class. Therefore, he interprets Adon Olam as follows. Adon Olam, master of the universe, Asher, Asher Malach, who reigned as king with Malchut Atzilut, Beterem Kol before anything else was created. Now, listen to the language here. This is being very deliberate because it uses the, it goes down in the worlds. Adon Olam. So first it mentions the first world, which is Olam Hatzilut, Asher Malach, who reigned. Beterem Kol before the, the world of Bria and the world of Yetzira, because it says Yetzir and Nivra. You following? And then Le'et Na'asa, and then at the moment where he chose to make the world of Asiyah, Bechefzo Kol, at his at the moment where he where he choose, chose with his will, because there's a relationship there with Hashem's will, Levadoyim Lochnara, then was it possible for the Malchut, which exists in our world and powers our world to exist? That's how he interprets the uh, the, uh, the 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 first couplet of Adon Olam, um, purely kabbalistically, which is that there's two types of Malchut, one higher, one lower, and he he uses this to he uses that in that Ma'amar to explain what the what the revelation of of Malchut was in the time of the Gulat Mitzrayim and what the revelation of Malchut is at the time of Rosh Hashanah and he compares and contrasts it. It's beyond the scope of this uh, shiur, but it's a fascinating uh, differentiation that he makes. Okay, so to go weiter, to go further, um, also the word et is deliberate. Kabbalistically, it, it refers to this form of Malchut. Um... Okay, just to, to go a little further, it says, Vachre kichlotakol, doesn't say Vachre kilotakol, after everything was destroyed. Because we know, well, not every, it means that like when everything is destroyed, meaning not that everything is going to be completely destroyed at the end of days, but it will be like everything is pushed, it's like Hashem is going to push reset. In the time of Mashiach, Tchiat Metim, that's, it's not a real destruction that Hashem is going to do to, to destroy the world. He's not going to make it go back to, to nothingness. It's a time of reset, of, of, a, of a rebootal or a resettle. Physical thing, more like a spirit. It's, well, it, yeah, it's not saying, it's not, yeah, exactly. It's not saying that Hashem is going to completely destroy the physical world. It's saying that there's going to be a new experiential world that we're going to experience. This is, again, in the view of the Kabbalists, they don't believe that, um, they don't believe that in, in the time of Biat HaMashiach that the physical world is going to cease to exist. The physical world is going to continue to exist. It's going to be more an elevated spiritual, an elevated physical world. So now, as you notice, the first three lines say Malach Hashem did was king. The, the middle line says Melech Hashem uh, is king. The last line says Levado Yimlochnara He will be king. The fourth line wraps it all up. It parallels the first three lines. It says Vehu Haya He was Vehu Hove He is Vehu and He will be Betifara and He will reign in glory. Now, the next two stanzas that Ashkenazim have are purely very simple praises of Hashem, showing how transcendent Hashem is. Hashem is one, he's not two, he's singular. There's no way to compare 
to give to give a, a mashal, to give a parable, to explain Hashem, or lahachbira, or to um, to uh, give counterpart to God. Without any notion of of uh, time, Hashem is infinite; He always existed. Now, what it does here is very beautiful, and I don't know. It immediately switches, meaning. It wants to say, Adon Alam is, is one of the reasons it's so beautiful is because it want, it's trying to say that even though this God who I'm praying to and I'm praising is so transcendent and is so above me and so other and so different from me and lofty, but still he is also the imminent God. He's also the God who's right here. He's a personal God who's right with us. So immediately the poem pivots and it says, Vihu Keli and he is my merciful God. And he is my living redeemer. And it gives these beautiful um, descriptions of God as your personal redeemer, as your refuge. And then it says, I'll trust my. Um, this led to speculation that Adonalam was written as a nighttime tefillah. It was written as something to say before you go to bed, because we learned about the Basuk Yadov Kidrachi that we give our neshama to Hashem every night. So there's speculation that Adon Alam was written as a nighttime prayer. There's no way to confirm it, however. Um, I have a question here. Yeah. On Vihuhaya. Which, which period would that be? Vihuhaya, was it before the world was created? Or? Yeah, we, we, we describe Hashem as He who was, is, and will be, meaning that He existed before the world created, He exists now, He existed at all time, and He's not bound by time at all, which is the Shem Havaya means that Hashem is the um, the um, omnitemporal one, the one who exists in all time, above all time. So now to, to stress your point, the you'll see here a couple of these lines that were added um, in some Sephardi versions are very philosophical. Now, most of the people reading Adon Olam who were scholars noticed the Kabbalistic um, references made in Adon Olam. However, However, the insertions are not Kabbalistic. The insertions are philosophical. So let's, if you look at all of these three insertions, what they do is they make three vuhus, three belies, and then again three vuhus. So po- poetically, it does work. Although even though poetically it works, um, philosophically it doesn't. Because it says vuhus... Now this is, these are things that a philosopher would say. They are accurate, especially if you believe in, in, in the Rambam's Moran Nebuchim. However, they're not something that you would necessarily hear a Mekubal say. Why? Let's take the first one. Vuhuri shon vuachron. And he is first and he is last. The kol chomer l'kol tzurah. To all form and to all matter. Now, form and matter are terms used by the, the Greek philosophers. And what it's trying to stress here is a point which was debated by the Rambam um, in Moran Nebuchim. You see, the Greek philosophers, both Plato and Aristotle, believed, because of certain laws of conservation and their, and their structure of physics and metaphysics, that the world had always existed. The only difference between Plato and Aristotle is that Aristotle believed that the world always existed in its present form, while Plato believed that matter had always existed, but God existed. But then God came and God took the matter, the pre-existing substance, and gave form to it. Um, Aristotle believed God was the first cause, and Plato had a slightly different view, but... Um, fundamentally, the Greeks believed that the world, there's a law of conservation. You can't tell me that, some, that uh, the things that exist in front of us at a certain time didn't exist. So this is, in Jewish philosophy, known as the difference between kadmut um, ha'olam or chidush ha'olam. Did the world... Was the world created or was the world first? Did the world come first and, and then God who, I guess, existed at the same time of the, of the world, not, not to get too, too technical, um, use matter to create the world, or did Hashem first exist and then create the world? Now, this was a matter of contention, even, unfortunately, among some of the Jewish philosophers. The Ramam took a stand and he said, absolutely not. The Ramam said that, he gave a mashal. He said, imagine, to argue on Aristotle, he said, let's say, imagine you have a boy who was orphaned at a young age. He lived with his dad his entire life. And he's never seen a woman. And his father, he asked his father, how do people, um, how do, how do people, how are people made? So his father explains to him how people are made and how a, um, how a fetus grows in the womb of what a woman is and how a fetus grows in the womb of his mother. And the child begins to ask very simple questions. 
does it breathe? Does it have any air? Does it get food? Does it use the bathroom? And the father says no. So the child rejects what his father's telling him. What are you, what are you, what are you telling me? This is not possible. How is it possible that, it, that something that can't breathe or any of these things can form and become a human? So the Ramam uses this example to, to illustrate that because this is something out of your realm of knowledge or understanding, it is impossible for you to make any assertions about it. So what he, he uses this mashal to say is that Aristotle is, is claiming that because of the laws of nature that we have and the laws of nature that we know, it is impossible for God to have preceded the universe. But says the Ramam, if the universe and the laws of nature came after God, then there is a time before that where these laws of nature didn't exist. And therefore, you can't ask a question based on laws of nature which were created by God because before the laws of nature were created, God existed and these laws of nature he himself created. So you're in a miraculous sphere. You're in a sphere where you're in, you're in a realm where there is no, you know, the same rules don't apply. So you can't ask a question. You cannot assert for, for sure that, that the world was created before God, uh, so that the world existed before God. So for this reason, the Ramam says, because we can't know for sure whether God came first or the world came first, we must take the Torah's testimony um, as as binding. And the Torah testifies that in the beginning, Hashem created the world, and therefore the Ramam uh, asserts definitively that Hashem created the world. It should be noted that the Rambam was prepared to if to admit that if philosophically you could prove that the world had always existed and God created the world from matter, he would have conceded that you would have had to reinterpret the entire Beratius to mean that Hashem created the world out of the existing matter. He was prepared to do that, but philosophically he refused because he said philosophically it absolutely makes no sense and um, Aristotle's physics do not support his assertion. That was what, this is why you see here the stanza, which is shown Hashem is the first and the last. Hashem preceded everything and he's even before all form and matter. It's a direct uh, refutation to the uh, to the Greek philosophy and the, the Neo-Aristotelian philosophy, and etc. Okay, so then you have a few lines later, that Hashem is of no measurement and of no comparison without change or, or, or swapping. Now, this is very important philosophically because in, 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 in the, the physics that, that the philosophers of that era used to prove God, they would use a, a form of proofs which involved how change worked and how change is always, you know, change is always a deleterious or cause effect of something which existed before it, which was more whole. And so to say that God is something which doesn't change, um, say God is, is a static perfect being is again a very philosophical thing. Say that Hashem is the first cause and he's the static being who who is both static and also truly powerful. Um, you could see that these are, are insertions which might musically sound nice and be philosophically true according to some Jewish philosophers, but um, I mean, even if they are true, if we, we do believe Hashem is Belishinoi Tumura, these aren't words that would be put in Yigdal because it's not of the same authorship. Belichibur, Beliparud, Hashem is not uh, separable, Hashem is not bindable. Gedol Koach simply a poetic insertion that Hashem is greater than all strength and might, that He's uh, omnipotent. And then it's, there's another line here a few lines later, whatever, that Hashem is a healer and also heals. Not clear who added that or why. And he is our Tzofan, our Ezra, the person who we seek to hope or to, 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 to seek help from. The last two lines that the Moroccans have seem to be a musical uh, uh, insertion. Like say Lashana Babi Yushalayim, as if you know at the end of Chagim they would say this that in Hashem's Beit Hamikdash we will sing and he should sing he should send our our Mashiach as you could see like Amen is not doesn't have a Shiva Amen right so it's clearly not Hazaj meter if it was the Hazaj meter it would have a Shiva or it'd be a Chataf Patach it wouldn't be an Amen in the way it is and also the the amount of syllables don't always match up okay that's so much for. Adon Olam, beautiful. We don't Adon, Adon Olam Yigdal should be a little quicker because we don't, if we were to give a shir on Yigdal, um, meaning on the Yud Gimel Ikrim that the Rambam set down, we could literally spend 13 hours because we do an hour per, <laughs> we'll do an hour per, uh, per, uh,
Line. Well, not just per line, but uh, per concept. concept, right? The Ramam set down. So the history of it is when the Ramam was in his 30s and he was forced to flee Spain or wander Spain because of the Almohad invasion, he was in the middle of writing his Pirush HaMishnayot. And in the Pirush HaMishnayot on Chelek, in the Hakdamat to the Mishnayot, he has a very, very famous treatise where he puts down 13 Ikarim, 13 rules of emuna, of faith that every Jew has to have. The Ramam was um, one of the first, one of the first to put down rules like this, and he also used them for halachic authority. The Ramam believed that if people didn't believe one of these thirteen things, he could put them in a classification halachically, like a kofar or a min, or one of the halachic classifications, which would make a difference for you know whether you burn a sefer Torah, whether you could walk into a shul, th- things like that. Other Rishonim did not agree completely with the Rambam, although they, in many of these concepts, they agreed, like, yeah, that Hashem is one, Hashem doesn't have a body. Although they agreed with many of these concepts, they did not, um, they, they did not agree with some of the halachic ramifications, like the Ravid disagreed that we would call somebody a kofar simply because he believed that Hashem had, had body parts, he believed that that was a bit of a stretch to do that halachically, but fundamentally many people agreed with the Rambam. Rabbi Yosef Albo in the Sefer Karim boils it down to only three, he says, no, you have to know that Hashem exists, Onesh, and uh, I think it was Tchiyat uh, HaMetim or something. He, he, he boils it down to three or four. Um, but the Rambam famously has 13. I, I, I sometimes like to point out that historically, um, if you look through Jewish history, any sect that, via, that usurped one of these 13 concepts had no, never lasted. You know what I mean? You'll have this from the Sidokim to the Baitusim to none of these movements ever really moved for longer than a hundred years. If 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 you if if one if they if they violated one of them, like they said Torah changes, or they said that Moshe is not the greatest Navi, or any of these things, they never really lasted uh, very very long. Um, if you have noticed, the reform is no longer a movement. It's more the reform is no longer a movement. It's more of a Static, very bored society of people. It's not doesn't have the same steam it did in the eighteen hundreds. Um, regardless, yeah, it's, it has power, but many sects of Judaism have risen and fallen, and none of them have stayed like Orthodox Judaism has. Very few Orthodox Jews today appreciate the Rambam's efforts because, um, simply put, we take these things for granted. We're taught them in nursery. We're taught that Hashem doesn't have a form, you know, in first grade. The Raman was so successful that no one has almost no one is grateful for for the work he did. When he was in his thirties, he wrote these Udgimalikarim, and then in Yad he repeats them. Um, however, he never in his thirties he wrote in 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 the Pirusha Mishnayot. He said, "I'm going to elaborate on these uh, when I uh, on a, in a book I plan to write." And then many many years later. When he was in his, I think, 60s, he wrote the Mor Nebuchim. took him about 10 years, I think it was. A uh, very long time to write Mor Nebuchim. And in Mor Nebuchim, he defends and, you know, approaches every one of these concepts. Um, and then he later amended the Pirush HaMishnayot, and he wrote, uh, and he referenced, like I wrote in Mor Nebuchim. <laughs> later on, he amended his own, uh, his own, his own Zefer. Okay, so now, who wrote Yigdal? Um, should we wait? Okay, so who wrote Yigdal? So most, as they say, all roads lead to Rome. So for the past, uh, I would say, for many, many years, nobody really knew who wrote uh, Yigdal. It was just a mysterious piyut that gained a lot of popularity. But in the, I think it was uh, maybe about, I would say 100 years ago, uh, a number of researchers began to find clues. And most of these clues were, um, led them to believe that is that it is of Roman, of Italian origin. And the reason is that in the 13th century, um, in, in, the, in the 13th century, uh, Emperor Frederick II hired a group of Jewish scholars, um, rabbis, etc., to translate many works of astronomy and works of mathematics and... and um, uh, did I say astronomy and science and philosophy into from from I believe it was from Latin into from Arabic into Roman I believe it was it might have been from sorry from Arabic into Latin or Italian at the time he wanted them to to help him translate these works and it was very important for the 
for for the church for the it was, it was a very important time these these scholars did a tremendous amount of work and brought humongous lost amounts like works of philosophy which had been lost uh, books of medicine they translated them for the king now because they were getting paid <laughs> it opened up a couple of you know they had the money to open up some but they made showed some yeshivot and of course, it encouraged the study of philosophy there in Italy, um, and they were very well uh, learned in areas like Mora Nebuchim and, and medieval philosophy in that area. So some of the famous, for example, the Balai Tosafot, which exist in that, existed in, in that area at that time, where the Tosafot read and the, and the, and the Riyaz, those are Rishonim that people in the yeshivas know about, but there were also various other scholars in, in Italy at the time. Now, what happened was was that in somebody found an old old R- Roman sidur, Machzor uh, lebnei Roma. One of the one of the researchers on Tfilah found a very old Machzor, and in it, somebody wrote the the the, the sofer. The it's a handwritten Machzor. He wrote that basically to, to, to abbreviate. He wrote that he was the grandson-in-law. His, his wife's grandfather was the person who wrote this piyut, and his name was Rabbi Daniel ben Yehuda Dayan. That was his name. Um, and somebody else also found in Venice a chumash from a, from a, from like a cheder, from like a Talmud Torah for children, an old chumash, which also said in it that it was written by Rabbi Daniel uh, bar Yehuda from Rome. So most researchers concluded that most likely it was written by this rabbi or or person um, uh, from Rome, from from Italy. It's written in what's in, in a meter, which is uh, like a modified razaj meter, uh, Arabic uh, meter. There's the two, there's the Igdal Elokim, two or three movements, and then Chai, which is the 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 Wati, the Yated, and then Vishdabach, uh, two more movements. Um, Okay, so why did it become so popular? Why was it added to the tefillah? So the, the real reason, no one really knows. It seems that it was very popular as an educational tool to teach children. You know, to, you could teach it in, in every cheder. People loved it. They probably came up with a song with it. For, with, they probably came up with a song for it very, very quickly. Um, there is a, a contemporary of the author was a contemporary of the author, uh, Emmanuel, uh, his name escapes me. There's, it's called Sefer Emanuel. He wrote the, a, safe, a book of poets called Machparot. He wrote a poem very similar to Yigdal, like a, a longer one. So pl- plenty of people believe that they were either friends or colleagues, and he basically abridged his friend's piyut and wrote Yigdal. Um, now, <laughs> the, some people would say that the Arizal really, really didn't like uh, Yigdal. So if you look in the Sfard version of the Art Scroll, the Ashkenazim don't really care as much about Kabbalistic things, but in the in the Sfard version, which is for Hasidim, the Hasidim do care what the Arizal thought. So in the, in the Art Scroll, the Sfard version, it says that the Arizal did not like, did not say Yigdal, but the Shla did say it. The Shla was also a highly respected Ashkenaz in Kubal. Um, now, it would be unsurprising that the Arizal did not say Yigdal, because the Arizal didn't really um, like any of the modern Piyutim. Almost all the Piyutim that were composed after the 11th century or so, all of the more recent uh, Piyutim, especially of the Spanish, um, the Arizal didn't like saying. And the reason he didn't like saying them was because they weren't Kabbalistically accurate. They were very beautiful. The Spanish Piyutim are gorgeous. I'm sure you've both read them on Rosh Hashanah and Kippur. They're breathtakingly beautiful, but not always is the ka- the Kabbalah completely accurate with the words. And the Arizal preferred Tefilot, which had a profundity, which was very deep, and that every word that you were going to say before God had to be profound on multiple levels. So he only would say the Piyutim from the earlier sources, the Paitanim, like Alazar Kalir, and Yanai be, be, uh, Yossi Berbiosi, and Yanai. He preferred those Piyutim because he... He, he recognized that the ones who wrote those knew exactly what they were talking about. The Dor HaGeonim, they, they, they knew exactly what they were writing and why. And um, he recognized the profundity, the Kabbalistic profundity of those of those Piyutim, and therefore he would say them. Interestingly, the legend is that the Arizal Davin Minhag Ashkenaz on the Yamim Noraim because his father was Ashkenaz. And furthermore, the Ashkenazim more commonly say the 
the early Putin than the Sfaradim. The, the Sfaradim say more of the Spanish ones, the Ashkenazim say more of the early uh, Gaonic ones, which would conform with the result. The result? Uh, 16th century, I believe. Uh, yeah, it was later. Or, let me think, 15th? He probably died. He was very young when he died, so I don't remember. Uh, no, the, he lived in the same time as the Beit Yosef, so I, I believe you're, we're talking the 15th century, probably the 15th century. I don't remember the exact dates. Um, now, the Shla did like Yigdal, um, probably as an educational tool, um, but also because he believed strongly that the, 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 the Yisodot that the Ramam put down were important to teach to all Jews, and the... Mate, uh, sorry, is it the Seder Hayom? Seder Hayom is a sefer written by one of the Tamidim, Rabbi Moshe bin Mechir, one of the the, the Svas, the, the people, the the Kumalim from Tzavat. And uh, he was also familiar with the, uh, I believe he was the Talmud of the Arizal. He did like Yigdal, and he wrote that it's good to say it for four reasons. Number one, it helps strengthen Amunah. And number two, oh, he, he brought the, the, the Minhag to say it on Shabbat after Musaf. So he says, first of all, it's good for Amunah. Second of all, the song is so great that it, uh, it's such a great song that it makes people happy on Shabbat. Third of all, it's great for Kivod HaShabbat. And fourth of all, it gives you Onik Shabbat. So he had four reasons why everyone should say Yigdal every Shabbat. And so the Seder Hayom said it. Plenty of people followed afterwards and Yigdal only gained in popularity. Um, so that's why uh, Yigdal became as famous and as 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 uh, well known as it is. What's beautiful is that you'll find many people who aren't super religious, but they know Yigdal by heart, and it's a very important thing because you know the the fundamentals of Judaism will never leave them. Um, some people don't like that to make a song with all our fundamentals. You know, it sounds a, lo- a little bit Christian, but because the Christians also have this this kind of song of, of all their fundamentals in one song, but. Um, it has been. It has. It seems, at least to our eyes, to be something very beneficial. I, 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 there, are, there are valid criticisms against Yigdal, but it is what it is, and it's been accepted among the Jewish people. So let's go go through it really quickly and just enumerate all the things that aren't too obvious. Yigdal alokim chayvishtabach. Let's exalt the the living God and 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 praise Him. Uh, I forgot to mention in Adon Olam we always refer to Hashem as Chai, not Chay. Chai means he is the living God, not Che, because Che means he he is a God who has life. It, like we it, humans have bodies that have life. God is not a being that has life. God is a living being because you can't say life and being are God is two separate things because then life would be something separate from God. Therefore, kabbalistically, philosophically, we say Hashem is Chai. Hashem is a living God. This is something uh, the Rambam points out very strongly. Okay, Nimsave ein eight el mitziuto that he exists and there is no um, uh, there is no time bound to his existence. Hashem exists in all time and outside of all time, um, because we know that you know time and space uh, exist. We know that time and space are intri- are intricately linked, but even though time and space are linked, Hashem exists free of all that. So that's that's the first uh, yisod of the Rambam, which is called Mitziut Hashem, the existence of God. The second one. Is achdut Hashem? Is that Hashem is one? So echad v'ein yachid ki There is one, and there is no no single one like him. Ne'elam v'gamein sof lachdutu. He is uh, quote unquote hidden, and there's also no end to his um, to his uh, singularity. Ein lo demut aguf ve'ein aguf lo nado chelav kedushato. Hashem has no no form, no 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 form of body, no body or no form of body. We cannot give measure to his holiness. And so that is Shein Lo Guf. That's the Shem is uh, is uh, totally Ruchani. It's called Rechikat Gashmi. The next one is the one we mentioned, the, the philosophical one. Kadmon Lekol Davar Shenevra. He is uh, first to all things that were created. Rishon Ve'Ein Eishitu Eishitu Hashem is first, and there is nothing first b- b- to his precedence. The next one is Hine. Adon, this one's not as obvious. Hino Adon Olam Chonasar. He is the master of the universe to all created beings. Yoda Gidulato Machoto. He he teaches his uh, teaches comes forth his his greatness and his sovereignty. So, the, what this is trying to say is that you, it's that the, the way the Raman puts it is that we have to serve Hashem and no other power. What's one of the Yud Gimel Karim according to Raman, the fifth one is that. It's a sort to serve a zara. You cannot go to an intermediary. You cannot worship angels. You cannot worship anything like that. So it's not obvious from the verse, but that's what it's trying to say. 
The next two are very obvious. Shefan Vuatone Tanog El Anshe Sigulato Tifarato that Hashem gave um, Hashem gave the influence of Nivua, that you have to believe in Nivua. Um, that Hashem will give Nivua to the people he chooses, special people. The next one is that that uh, Moshe Rabbeinu is the greatest of all prophets. That Moshe saw God's uh, didn't quite see, but experienced God's countenance. So this one's important because this, this is according to the Rambam is that Torah min Hashemayim. We have to believe that Torah was not written by man. It came from from uh, from God who gave it to Moshe min Hashemayim. So it's the true Torah that Hashem gave to his nation. The next one is that the Torah will never change. Lo yachlif hakel v'lo yamir. Hashem is not going to change. Moshe the first luchot Hashem wrote it all. Wrote, yeah, but the the Torah in the 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 corpus of the entire Torah was given um, from heaven. In other words, that Hashem created it. The, the distinction is that it's not human. That, that's, that's, that's the Rambam's trying to say. The next one is that the Torah will never change. That Hashem will never change or modify his his law forever. He he can see and know our hidden secrets. So and that he can gaze to the end of a thing at its beginning. This is not as clear, but what he's trying to say is that the Rambam believes it's imper- imperative for a Jewish person to believe that Hashem can read your thoughts, that Hashem is omnipotent, and that Hashem can read the thoughts of man, and that even though you have free will and your thought is free, Hashem can still read your thought. We mentioned last week that even the angels cannot read human thought. However, God can. Gomel ish chasid kmefalo, that Hashem, this this last one is also not as obvious, but this means schar onesh. The Ramam was very strong that his that you have to believe that even the Kolbo believe that you have to believe that there's reward and punishment that Hashem will bestow upon a person um, what he deserves according to his um, actions. Let me just pause this for a second. Okay, so really quickly, the um, the last two are uh, that Hashem is going to uh, send the Mashiach, and uh, for all those who read Hebrew, can just uh, can follow along at at home. That is. The belief in Mashiach and the belief in Tchiyat Metim. Those are the last two of the Rambam's Yudgim Alikrim. And then there's an addition by the Svaradim, Elu Shalosh Hemi Karim, Hein Hemi Dat El They don't conform to the meter, but they fit with the song. Torat Moshe Metun Shem Tilato. These are the Moroccan editions. Sliklan. Next week we're going to hopefully discuss the unpopular additions to the morning prayer, and we're going to discuss the things that no one says anymore.